Uh, good morning. Going to uh, continue with Matthew chapter 14, the, the feeding of the 5,000, but let's, uh, let's start with a word of prayer. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we again ask for your special blessing as we try to understand your Son, and we know that that is your will, that we should understand him, his words, his actions, his miracles, and the hope that is in him. And we do really pray that each of us might be inspired and that we might glorify him the more in our in our feelings and at uh, this moment and also in our lives, and that we might make those changes that we need to make, that we might conform ourselves to the image of your dear Son. Please help us, Father, in Jesus' name, and for his sake we ask all this. Amen. Right, well, Matthew 14, uh, this starts off with the uh, the execution of, uh, of John the Baptist, and you know the story, how it goes on, and I just want to pick up a couple of details. Uh, in verse 8, she says, um, the, the girl says, give me John the Baptist's head on a plate. Now, that's a pretty weird thing to ask at first blush. And yet, if you have a, a poke around the classical literature of the time, the idea of heads being offered on plates is actually quite common. Uh, very bizarre, it might be to our ears, but the idea of heads on plates definitely connects with paganism, pagan offerings. This was quite a common way of uh, performing various pagan rituals. Now, Herod was not Jewish, but he, he was Idumean, but he claimed to be an observant Jew to kind of keep in with the Jews. So now he, he was really put in an impossible position to go for this pagan sort of ritual He'd said, I'll give you whatever you want, and she said, I want a pagan ritual that involves the, the, the beheading of John the Baptist. He either went that way, or, of course, he, uh, he refused, and he couldn't do that. Lots of face and so forth. And so he was really put in a difficult position, but, of course, it was of his own making. And he was sorry, verse 9. He was sorry, and he didn't want to, to do this, but he did it against his will. And yet, in verse 5, we read that Herod wanted to put John to death earlier, but he feared the multitude. So, he had wanted, in verse 5, to kill John, but he had feared the multitude, and now he had the opportunity to do it. Now he had to do it. But I think we need to pause and just take a very simple lesson from that, that what you may really, really want to do in anger against a person you know, what happens if it comes true? There's a way somehow in life that means that our dominant desire somehow comes true and then we realize that's not what I want. Now you may say, that's not so, I really want to be a millionaire. Well, if you're not a millionaire and if you really want to be one, it just simply wasn't your dominant desire. What I'm saying is that people tend to get their dominant desires. And that's why, of course, the... The state of the heart, the thinking, the mind, is so important in true Christianity because you essentially are your thoughts and your dominant desires and in the end you get those dominant desires. And so Herod really wanted to kill John and then here you are, Herod, you've actually got to do it. Oh, no, I don't want to do that. Yeah, that's it. That's what you wanted to do. Here you are, Herod. And so that's why it's so important. My son, give me your heart. That's what 
God says in the Proverbs, and that is really the essence of Christianity, to be spiritually minded, to want the right thing, <clears throat> to want the right things. Now, of course, Herod was being manipulated here by this very manipulative woman. And when poor John there in, in the prison uh, understood what had gone on, that, uh, you know, you've got to die, uh, he would have, I guess, immediately thought <clears throat> of Jezebel and her influence on Ahab in leading him to persecute Elijah. Now, John's dominant desire was to be as Elijah. And in a sense, he got it. And as he went to his death, he must have realized that, that yes, that was what I wanted to do from a young man out there in the desert. <clears throat> and it all actually worked out. Yes, that is what I wanted to do as a young man, and God confirmed me in that, and now I come to my death, and again God has confirmed me in that. In that beyond what John personally could arrange, you know, he couldn't have arranged the manipulative wife of Herod and, and the death and, and all that, uh, God's hand was clearly there, saying to John in his last moments, John, you are Elijah. John, I have accepted you as my Elijah prophet. And that, I think, is how it works out in life. That if your dominant desire is for the things of this world, you probably will get them. Career, wealth, and so forth. If your dominant desire is to serve God and ultimately to be in God's kingdom, you'll get that. But the key is, what is your dominant desire? Because you see here two men, Herod and John, who both finally got what they really wanted. It's just that they wanted different things. And when Herod finally got what he wanted, which was the death of John... He was not happy. John, we can't say, was uh, happy to die in that sense, but uh, he would have died feeling that, yes, this is the confirmation from God by that hand that is greater than me, that is a ranging situation in life. Now, he was sorry, verse 9, Herod was sorry, but for the oath's sake he did it. Well, it wasn't just for the fear of uh, losing face. The idea of an oath in those days, particularly for someone like Herod, who claimed to be an observant Jew, the idea was, may I be eternally condemned at the last day if, if I don't do this, or if so-and-so. This is, incidentally, what Peter did when he uh, cursed and made oaths that he didn't know the Lord. He wasn't using expletives. He was using uh, these kind of, of Jewish oaths, uh, swearing condemnation upon himself at the last day, if, for example, he had ever known Jesus. And so Herod is saying, may I be condemned at the last day if I don't give you what you want. She says, well, I want his head on a plate. I want you to do a pagan ritual. Well, the, the guy is caught, isn't he? He's absolutely caught. And overarching all that situation, he, in verse 5, had wanted to kill John, and now, okay, that's what you wanted to do. Right, here you are. You do it. And so God gives you in the end what you really want. Well, moving on now towards the, the, the feeding incident, verse 14, <clears throat> Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them. Jesus went forth, I guess, uh, out of the, the boat. And there's sometimes in Matthew where it's like he's a cameraman and he zooms his lens right up close onto the very uh, bodily movements of the Lord. And all of this is evidence to me that the Gospels, and particularly Matthew, were clearly written by eyewitnesses. 
Now, why would he focus upon this coming forth from the, <clears throat> from the boat to land? Well, verse 13, he departed into a desert place apart, alone. He wanted to be alone. This is an example, I think, of his humanity. Well, life didn't go as he wanted it. He had a plan. I want to go, to go and be alone, reflect on the loss of my cousin John. And then, oh, hang, you know, the boat draws near to, to land. Oh, hang, there they are, the crowds, thousands of them. And so the focus of Matthew's lens is on he went forth. He didn't say, guys, no, don't land here. Let's just go off to some other place, avoid these guys. No. He, his compassion moved him. He, he was uh, moved with compassion to all them, and Mark's parallel record in Mark 6.34 says, because they were as sheep having no shepherd. So then his compassion, his pity towards people, was not because of their material need, but because of their spiritual need. And time and again you see this, that his compassion is because of spiritual need of people. Now, in the age in which we live, it is common... To, to see you know, photographs of children and so forth in, in terrible situations and we are moved to compassion by the physical need and there's nothing wrong with that but what I'm saying is that over and above that should be a compassion for spiritual need if you stand, let's say, on a busy concourse say in an airport or a train station or something and there's thousands of people rushing past you do you not feel that same compassion? If you're landing on an airplane and you see the lights of a city laid out there, out of your window, you know, do you not feel compassion for the lost? That is exactly the picture that we have here. Uh, and the Greek word seems to mean a literal sort of movement within the ribcage as the Lord uh, perceived this. Now, being moved with compassion is a major feature of the Lord. You've got this... Uh, six or seven times in Matthew alone, that the Lord sees a situation and is moved with compassion. And this, of course, is the challenge to us, that do we have the Spirit of Christ? Do we have the mind of Christ? And as you say, well, what is the mind of Christ? What is the Spirit of Christ? Well, you have it here. To be moved with compassion for human spiritual need. So that it won't be that we, we're too shy to, to dare breathe a word to the bloke next to us about the, the hope that we have and about the good news of Jesus. If you're moved with compassion for those people, you can't be passive to them. You can't be passive to the crowd. You will come forth out of the boat. Just as I said, we all have to do that. To come out of our own little cocoon, of our own little life and our own little personality to meet with people, to change the flow of conversation, to raise out of thin air sometimes the, the issues of Jesus and the issues of baptism into him and the hope that, that is absolutely possible in him. And also, this Jesus is the same yesterday, today and forever. That it's not that he was one person then, but when he comes back he shall be another. The same Jesus that was moved with compassion as a fundamental part of his personality is the same with whom we have to do today, and is the same forever. This is who he essentially is, that, that basic pity. But looking at all those times when we read in the Gospels of Jesus being moved with compassion, every time 
it is in the context of other people not being moved with compassion. Give you an example, the Samaritan, who's clearly Jesus in, in the parable, he's moved with compassion, with pity, but the other two guys, the priest and the Levite, are not. Um, Matthew eighteen twenty seven, the Lord has compassion to the indebted servant and forgives him. But that servant doesn't feel that same compassion to his brother who's got a small debt to him. The father was moved with compassion to the prodigal, but the older brother wasn't. And uh, even here, he's moved with compassion towards the people to feed them, whereas you get the sense the disciples are irritated by them. Tell them to go away. No. I have compassion on them. I have pity on them. Now, this is the difficulty in living the life of compassion, of pity, of solidarity with others, that we do so surrounded by men and women who do not, and who have an absolute don't-care attitude. Now, that's what makes it difficult, of course, and that is where our personal relationship with the Lord and our personal sense of his presence is what is sometimes the only inspiration that you're left with in living this kind of life. Now, the disciples say, send the crowds away. And that, in Matthew 14, 15, is exactly the term that's used about them sending the children away, sending the little ones away. Again, Matthew, we're going to read the same um, in uh, Matthew 15, 23, and later on, Matthew 18, when they send the little ones away. So, I think that... This is a major sin of the disciples, and we're going to see that when they're caught up in the, uh, in the storm right after this incident, and they very nearly die, and they pass through a kind of condemnation experience, I think this is the Lord's, uh, I won't say punishment, but his discipline, let's say, in love of them for this pretty serious error. Send them away. This is a, a, a big theme in the gospel. So the disciples say, send them away, be it the children, the little ones, or, or, or the crowds, or the, the Syrophoenician woman, go away, go away. And every time the Lord is very angry with them and says, no, let the children come, he cures the woman. He says, if you don't let the little ones come, then you shall be condemned. And we have to ask ourselves whether as individuals or in the part that we play in communities, we are actually being a barrier between God and man, between Jesus and man. Because it seems to me that a lot of churches are, effectively, obviously not consciously, but de facto that is how they are. Those who operate closed table and the rest of it, they are putting a barrier up between Jesus and people, between Jesus and the little ones. They're telling the crowds to go away, you're not up to scratch. You've heard the teaching, now you go away and figure it out. And the Lord was angry with his people for doing that. Now, of course, it's a pure, purely natural reaction to say, no, no, you can't come to the Lord. Uh, you're not, you can't jump over the hoops. Now, unfortunately, what we can do is to enshrine that natural attitude, that fleshly attitude behind things like statements of faith and policy positions, all this kind of garbage. When we are personally called to bring people to Jesus and not to turn them away from him. 
They said, send them away to buy themselves food. Well, if there was 5,000 men, males, you can be sure there was at least 10,000 people. There, there was no, there's no supermarket there. Those little hamlets and clusters of houses there that might have had some sort of shop in them, uh, they no way could, could have even had the food for, for 10,000 people. So there was no sensitivity there at all. And of course the Lord says they need not depart. And John 6 is the uh, parallel account of this. And in John's uh, way, of course, he records the whole incident from a more spiritual uh, perspective and records a lot of the Lord's teaching, which is not recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Well, John 6.37, in, in the Lord's teaching at this time, he says, whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. I will in no wise turn away. That's based upon his words here. They need not depart. I am not going to send them away. And that's a great comfort. When, if you've been caused a stumble or hurt by so-called brethren saying, you can't come here, you, you, you can't fellowship or, or whatever. Well, whoever comes to Jesus will not be turned away. Those guys are just out of step with the Lord Jesus Christ to, to, to forbid coming to him. And the Lord says, you give them. Well, according to John 6 verse 5, the Lord also asked, from whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? So he's saying, look, you know, you're with me. We, you and me, have got to resolve this. And also when he says, you give them, that he's commenting on the way they say, well, where are we going to buy? And there, his own words, from whence shall we buy? No, you give them. They were so caught up with money, they thought, well, you know, we can't. It's going to cost so much money. No, he's saying, no, it's not a case of buying them, buying them food, you know, or them buying themselves food. As the disciples said, send them away so they can buy themselves food. The Lord says, no, you give them. Now, the tension between let them go and buy food and the Lord saying to the disciples, no, you give them for free. If they had perceived it, they would have seen he was directing their, their minds to Isaiah 55, a passage they surely knew. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Now, that's a paradox, isn't it? If you, if you don't have any money, how can you buy? He who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Why do you spend your money for that which is not, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Again, the Lord picks those words up in his discourse here in John 6. They, these people have walked all around the lake, and he basically says, labor not for the bread which perishes, but for the, the message, the life that I can give you. Listen diligently to me, that's what they were doing, these thousands of people. Eat what is good and delight yourselves in abundant food. Well, the food that was provided was abundant. Now, the Lord doesn't say, hey guys, remember Isaiah 55? He makes the point to them by sort of indirect allusion. And I think that's his style. That's what he does in our lives. Nudge, nudge. Don't you see this is similar to this or that Bible verse that Bible history, that biblical precedent. That's the way he works, by nudging us. 
And in this, I think you see the, the reason for Bible reading and for fluency with the, with the text of the Bible. You may read it and say, well, I didn't understand that. Or, okay, yeah, that was a bit of history. Yeah, okay. Okay, maybe at this point in time you didn't, as I said, get anything out of it. But that's not quite the point. Because it's not just an, an episode of Bible reading where you read a text and you, quote, get something out of it. No. You read the text, you're exposed there to God's word, and it's all part of a dialogue of life. And he, through providential situation, will nudge you, like he was nudging them here. Isaiah 55, guys, you can provide this for them free. Because I'm here, and I'm the son of God. These people who need to buy can get all the food they want. Now, he's nudging them another way, and it's the 2 Kings 4, 42, where, in a similar situation, the man of God, uh, the prophet, told his servant to feed uh, a huge multitude. He gave what bread he had to them, and they fed the people. It's a very similar situation. But the, the servant replies, 2 Kings 4, 43, uh, shall we give them to eat? And then the man of God makes the miracle happen. So actually, as soon as they had said or felt that, the disciples had said or felt this, what do you mean? We give them to eat? We didn't have enough money. Where are we going to get the food from? It, they should have thought, uh-huh, that's exactly the words of the faithless servant in 2 Kings 4. And what happened? The man of God gave them bread, and they then fed the multitude. So again, the Lord was leading them into this. He was leading them to say, but from whence should we have bread to feed all this multitude? Because he knew that if they did say it, they were going to realize, oh yeah, that's 2 Kings 4, that's like that incident where, where, where the multitude were fed miraculously. And he hoped, of course, that they would stop just before they said those words and think, oh yeah, mm -hmm. well I don't want to say what the faithless servant said, uh, from whence should we find bread for this multitude, um, I'll believe that Jesus can do it. So this, as I say, is how the Lord works to this day in human life, by nudging us towards the right conclusions. He does not force us. And as I say, this is the, the role that is played by our familiarity with the Bible text. Nudge, nudge, all the time. Now, there's another thing. When they say, that, you know, from, from where should we find food for this people? Do you know what? They are the very words of Moses. When he's at one of his low points, if you drew a graph of the life of Moses and gave him a mark out of ten for faith and spirituality, you'd, you'd see as the time along the bottom, you'd see the graph going up and down, getting higher, I believe, over time, as a sort of trend, but pretty jagged graph. Now, when the people... Uh, come to him and say, look, uh, give us food. He complains bitterly to God. When shall I have flesh to give unto all this people? And he almost mocks God by saying that all the fish of the sea wouldn't be enough to feed all this people. And the record is in Numbers 11. Now, Judaism figured that, or they taught, that Moses never sinned. And I think the Lord again is leading them to say this. Well, from when should we have flesh to, to feed all this people? knowing that the minute they said that, and then afterwards when they realized that they had said that in lack of faith, 
they would also realize, hey, they were the words of Moses. And when I, when I said that, that was a sin, wasn't it? It was a lack of faith that the Lord would provide. And that means that Moses also must have had a lack of faith at that point in time. So you see how intellectually amazing the Lord was, that he's working here on at least three different levels, uh, alluding to Numbers 11, 2 Kings 4, uh, and Isaiah 55. Just in, you know, just like that. And, you know, and that's just me figuring out three levels. And who's to say there's not another, another 30 levels of illusion there? Um, I'm just sharing three of them with you. And that he did that in a flash. And knowing also that this whole incident was not uh, stage, stage managed, that it hadn't been planned ahead of time because his idea was to go away quietly. And then the whole thing, oh hang, there's the, uh, there's the crowd. The whole thing changed. Verse 17. We have here, they say, we have here only five loaves and two fishes. Well, in John 6, verse 9, they said, there is a lad here who's got five loaves and two fishes. So the boy out of the crowd clearly gave his food to the disciples, and that's why the, the bread was no longer his, but the disciples say it's theirs. And then they give it to Jesus. And what does he do? He gives it back to the disciples, and they uh, give it in turn to the multitude, which would have included the little boy. So the bread, as it were, cycled around. It came from the boy to the disciples, to Jesus, back to the disciples, back to the boy. And he says that that bread in John 6 represents himself, the bread of God which came down from heaven. And yet, quite clearly, that bread was, if you like, a, a recycling of that which had been provided here on earth by absolutely human means. Well, the Lord looks up to heaven and blesses, and I, I love that because that um, just shows the, the openness which there was between, between the Father and Son, that he could lift his eyes to heaven. This is noted a number of times, and you can understand why, because it's a sort of an essay, really, in his perfection. Now, there's no word from the Lord ahead of time that he's going to do a miracle. He doesn't say now, watch what I'm going to do, watch for my next trip, I'm going to give you the bread and it's not going to run out. Right. He presumably broke the five loaves into twelve parts and gave a bit to each of the disciples and the two fish likewise into twelve parts. Twelve uh, showbread loaves, uh, as it were. And anyway, the disciples, each of them holding this palpy little piece of bread, would have gone around the huge crowd, kept on dishing it out. And it kept on working. It kept on being there. It kept on just being in the head. Now, it was, a, I suppose, a sign of their faith, because they would have risked looking foolish, I guess, when it first started. But don't you see the similarity with the, the wine at Cana? Why the similarity? Well, I think because the Lord clearly had a program of teaching the disciples. He had taught them there at Cana that, well, they kept on pouring out the, uh, the, the, the wine and he kept on, uh, the, the water and it kept on turning into wine, just kept on and on and on. And I think this was to prepare their faith. 
so that they, when they started doing this, they would have thought, they hopefully would have thought, is this going to be a repetition of what happened in Cana with the wine? And of course it was. Now, the whole uh, incident of feeding the 5,000 is clearly, especially in John John 6, uh, the, the parallel record, is clearly a form of the breaking of bread uh, meeting. You know what John's Gospel's like? It doesn't record uh, some of the things which are there in the, the others, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, but it does actually refer to them in spiritual terms. So in the Upper Room Discourse, which is recorded in great detail in John, there's no record of the breaking of bread. But there is a breaking of bread in John, and it's here. It's rather like you don't have any command to be baptized at the end of the Gospel of John, which you do in the others. But you do really, in John 3, have the equivalent, that unless you are born of water and of spirit, you shall not enter the kingdom of God. And this is, you know, but we've, I'm sure we've all figured that out about John's Gospel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You have the, uh, the beginning of the Gospel with Jesus being born in the, in the manger in Bethlehem and so forth. And yet John, John has that, but it's all in more spiritual terms, that in the beginning God had uh, a word, and that word became flesh. Well, here then, I think we have John's equivalent of the breaking of bread. In John 6.51, the bread which I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. It's very similar to 1 Corinthians 11.24, this is my body which is for you. The bread which I give is my flesh, this is my body, for the life of the world, which is for you. And it's significant that the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels. Clearly, this is seen as very important. And not only is the allusion to the breaking of bread, the provision of abundant food and the obvious allusion to Isaiah 55 indicates that this is also an allusion to the messianic banquet, the great banquet of the last day when the Lord Jesus has returned. So then, the breaking of bread is a foretaste of the, the messianic banquet of the last day. Now, Jesus is present with us when we break bread. It's just that you can't see him. In the banquet of the last day, he shall visibly be, be seen. And of course, that is why your attitude to others at the Lord's table now is really your attitude to them at the last day. If you reject people from the breaking of bread now, you are rejecting people from the kingdom. If you take the highest place at the table and think that you can tell this guy to get out and that one to not pass the emblems to his wife or to, to her husband or whatever, well, you know, you, you, you're not going to be acting like that at the Messianic banquet, right? It's not your party. So then, the parallels between the breaking of bread and the, uh, the marriage supper of the Lamb of the last day are, are very great. I mean, the Lord himself says this, I will not drink this fruit of the, of the vine with you again until until I do it again with you in that day. So he's saying, clearly, the breaking of bread is the, the foretaste in this life of the Messianic banquet. Now, eating together in the first century had a, a religious element to it, which is hard for us to understand. This was especially true in, in Judaism, that it was very important 
who you ate with. You know, this is why the Jews criticized Jesus. You, you eat with publicans and sinners. And so it was all a question of boundaries and uh, tests for purity and tests of ethnicity. And the great thing about this uh, feast here, out in the open air, is that there was no test of purity or ethnicity. Um, it was a, a banquet, a banquet table set on the wilderness, and there was no, no checking out of who was there. There were kids, Gentiles, this, that, and the other. Everyone was, was welcome. Now, <clears throat> well, when the Lord says in the, here in this incident in John 6 anyway, I am the bread of life, this is, I think, the equivalent of what he later says uh, at the breaking of bread, this is my body. In other words, he was totally identified with that, that, that bread. Now, I said that this is all a picture of the messianic banquet, and there's a strange word used about how they sat down and it's the word for reclining, as you would recline at a banquet. Didn't just sit there, it says that they reclined, as if they're on couches at a banquet, and they're lying down at a great banquet. Clearly, this is supposed to be understood as the messianic banquet. It's quite likely that some of these people were, were Gentiles because this was a Gentile part of, of the lake that, he, that he'd gone to. Now, the, the radical nature of what he did is, is maybe beyond our ability to quite imagine, seeing that we weren't living and we don't live in that culture. The fact that he opened his table to anyone who happened to want to come, this was an incredible paradigm breaker. Again, in John 6, when we read that he blessed, this is this from this verb, Eucharistine, from whence you get the word Eucharist. Um, and that definitely has a ritual, religious sense to it. It's not just that he, oh yeah, I'll just give thanks for the food. No, he, he blessed it in, in, a, in, a, in a ritual and a religious sense. He said a blessing over it. Now, <clears throat> the same Greek words for break bread that we, we read here, uh, for example, um, in verse 19, that he, he blessed and break the loaves. This is exactly the same word that's used about the breaking of bread. Exactly the same. Uh, and it's the same word used in Luke 24 about how he he was known of the, the two disciples uh, at Emmaus in the breaking of bread, when he broke the bread to them. Now, you've got here, I think, a similar rubric, a, a similar uh, stylization of, uh, of the record. When we read of him taking bread, blessing, uh, breaking, giving to the disciples. That is what you've got here. It's what you've got at the breaking of bread, in the breaking of bread records, and it's what you've got uh, in, in the record of it in, in 1 Corinthians 11. So then, this taking bread, blessing, breaking, giving to the disciples, I, I just can't believe that this is not somehow relevant to the breaking of bread. 
So this is an open table breaking of bread, if you like, extraordinaire, extraordinary, with 5,000 people from, from all over the place. Now, I, uh, I, I can't help but, but notice that the same Greek word occurs in all the, in all the accounts. Uh, that which remained here in verse 20. And it's a terribly poor translation. This reference to the bits and pieces that remained, because it means to, to superabound. There was a superabundance of food. And it's the same word used in Ephesians 1 verse 8 of how God's grace has superabounded to us, how he has lavished his grace upon us. So then, there was so much left over. This is noted by all the accounts, and it's noted also in the, 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 the later account of feeding of the 4,000. God's generosity to us, particularly in Christ, is amazing. And it should touch us. And of course, in response, what you do in response, you too are to be super abounding in generosity. And yet there is a, a strong feeling amongst some, amongst many of us maybe, that no one was kind to me. No one was generous to me. And yet, even if that's how you feel, I mean, you're probably not justified in feeling that. But even if you feel that, that you know, nobody went out of their way to be generous to me. Well, don't you see here the super abounding generosity of God and of Jesus to you? Because this bread is the symbol of Jesus. This is what he has given to us. It says in verse 21, there were about 5,000 men there. Uh, you, you do wonder why it, that's put in that way, and why it doesn't give a total figure for men, women, and children. There's only one other time where you read about about 5,000 men. And it's in Acts 4, verse 14. Uh, sorry, verse 4, where it would seem that it, there was two groups of, ma of uh, mass baptisms of 3,000 and then 2,000 to bring up the number two to 5,000 in total. And there you've got, again, the same disciples, minus Judas, going around amongst 5,000 people, ministering the bread of life to them. So you see how... <laughs> God's education of people is, is just so great that he, he leads them around 5,000 people, men, it says, um, distributing the bread of life. And then later on, fairly short order afterwards, after the Lord has risen, there they are walking around ministering to above 5,000 men, about 5,000 men. So then, this is why there is meaning attached to event in our lives. And although you don't see it at times, uh, God has a plan for each of us, and he's trying to educate us and to lead each of us on. This is the meaning that there is to experience. So then, I, I rest my case that the, uh, the, the feeding of the 5,000 was a form of the breaking of bread. I, I think that the, that the similarities of, of language and the, the rubric that he took the bread blessed it, um, break it, and gave to the disciples. Uh, I, I think that that is so clearly the breaking of bread. Now, I, I just don't think that one can pretend they don't see that. 
And of course, the disciples, in their turn, what did they do with the bread? They gave it to the crowd. And so this, I suggest, is what we should be doing, that we likewise open the Lord's table. Now, of course, there's all sorts of fears about uh, contamination, and does that mean you get all sorts of people coming in, uh, blah, blah. Well, yes, it does, but we are not to fellowship with the unfruitful deeds of darkness. That means on Friday night, you don't go with them to where they go. But on Sunday morning, you invite them to you. You don't fellowship, that is, share in their deeds, and the commands about not fellowshipping are nearly all in the context of practical life. Don't share with people in wrong behaviour, but invite them to the Lord's table. He who is open to all kind of sinners, prostitutes, tax collectors, and so forth. And it was that openness, which I think was so shocking to first century Judaism, to the people of God of his time, and it's of course equally shocking to so many, many today. But he didn't uh, share his bread, break his bread with people because they had repented. He shared his bread with them, broke his bread with them, in order to lead them to repentance. And that was his answer to the criticism, why are you breaking bread with, with sinners? And he gives the parables about repentance. And his answer really is, because I want to lead these people to repentance. As soon as you start saying, well, no, there's a line in the sand, there's a hoop, there's a bar, and if you can jump over that, then you're good, then you can break bread. Well, I, th I think we're missing it. And we're also missing the point that you yourself personally fail that bar. You don't have enough knowledge. You don't have a pure enough life. And it's no good saying, well, yes, I'm a sinner, but I'm not that bad. <laughs> then you've missed the point completely, absolutely completely, of, of the parable of the hopelessly indebted uh, servant, because that's me and that's you. Well, he says to them, um, he, that, uh, he, he, say, he sends the crowds away, and he tells them, verse 22, to go before him on the lake. Now, that's a very odd phrase, to go before. And trying to turn the, the, the Greek words on their side, as it were, to try to see what he might have meant. I'm afraid I came back to what I think is the obvious meaning of them. And that is that you go to sail, and you're going to go in front of me. In other words, I'm going to be walking behind you on the lake. That's that's what the Greek words mean. Uh, I don't think there's any amount of twisting that can change that. Now they would have just thought, ah, he's a bit of a, he's a bit weird. Yeah, he does say some funny things. That's what people say about me. Um, you, you know, he does come out with some strange things sometimes. And they thought, yeah, well, I guess he means he, he's going to get there. Yeah, he's going to walk around the lake, pretty long walk, poor guy. But anyway, okay, so he's, he says that's what we've got to do. Okay, and we're going to go in front of him. But of course, he knew what was going to happen. And he wanted them to be set up to be looking for him, walking to them on the water. Well, he sends the crowds away, verse uh, 23, and he goes up into a mountain apart to pray. Idios, kata idios. And uh, this is so necessary, this personal relationship with God. 
And you sense him right at the end of his tether. He had intended to, to go apart with the disciples privately, but then the crowd see their boat and walk around the lake, and his compassion is so great that he can't send them away. And he finally gets rid of the disciples, and he desperately, you, you sense him, uh, with his tongue hanging out, as it were, for this personal time with God. And really, we must ask ourselves personally, do I have this? And I don't mean wrapped up, warm in bed, uh, just about to go to sleep, and you think, oh yeah, well, I better pray to God, and next you know it's morning. I'm talking about, as the Lord did here, this conscious making of time, kata idios, from whence you get idiosyncratic, me, I, I, as myself, with God. You know, are we making that time? Because that, that is the essence of spirituality. This is, you know, like the busy office worker who, who literally goes to the toilet cubicle and locks himself in for five minutes, ten minutes in their lunch break to pray. Things like that are the essence of spirituality. Now, he was there alone. It's as if it's confirmed. The record confirms that, yes, he achieved this aloneness with God. Well, then the disciples were in the midst of the sea, verse 24, and this great storm comes. Now, people at that time had a strong association between the sea and the forces of evil. And the whole idea of, of perishing in the midst of the sea, this is absolutely the language of Exodus 14 and, uh, and that about the, the destruction of Pharaoh in the midst of the sea. And they are in the midst of the sea. Jonah drowned in the midst of the sea. Jonah 2 verse 3. Tyre and the Gentile nations and Babylon, they're all described as being cast down and perishing in the midst of the seas. This is the punishment of condemnation for the Gentiles. And so they clearly felt that they were condemned. And at the fourth watch of the night, verse 25, that's between 3 and 6 a.m., that's the very watch of the night, Exodus 14, verse 20, when uh, the Egyptians were destroyed in the Red Sea. Now, clearly, all these biblical allusions were not completely lost on them. They went through a process of condemnation, so that when they saw the Lord, they cried out unto him. You can be condemned in this life, and yet change the verdict. Rather like Peter, he, he went out from the presence of the Lord and wept bitterly. This is exactly the, the language of condemnation at the last day. And yet he was saved out of it. Now just imagine, coming to the day of judgment, you're condemned, and you're like, oh Lord, please change it, please change the verdict, even now. And the Lord says, yeah, okay, you're good. Okay, I'll let you off. And you're like, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. You know what? That's going on in this life. Because we are condemned for our behavior. All sin wants condemnation. And yet we can be forgiven. And we are forgiven. Now, you wonder why we don't have that, that sense of, of gratitude, that flame of praise, that, that zeal for him. Well, one of the reasons is because we don't appreciate the degree to which we have sinned and been condemned. 
and been saved out of that condemnation. Now, it seems to me that the Lord has led them to a position where they should have been looking for him, because he said, you're going to go before me on, on the lake. And, of course, there were so many Old Testament predictions, Psalm 107 in particular, of how Yahweh would and does walk upon the waves of the sea, and how he comes to those upon the sea who cry out unto him. So again, he set them up here to call upon him with great intensity. And, you know, that, that, is, that is how he works in our lives. Now, when he says, it is I, that could have, in verse 27, uh, that could have been a reference to the Yahweh name, where he's saying, did you get the illusion? Did you get it that this is Yahweh walking to you on the ways of the sea? It is I. I am. Now, I'm not saying, of course, that Jesus is God, but he was the supreme manifestation of God. And, as he says, John 5.43, I am come in my Father's name. So he carried the name. He acted functionally as God, although he was not God. He was the Son of God uh, of human nature. Now, likewise, in 27, take heart, he says. Now, in Matthew 9, twice in Matthew 9, in fact, verses 2 and 22, the Lord had used those very words just before he healed somebody. So again, even in this moment of crisis on the lake, he's all the time nudging them towards faith by getting them to see the similarities with, with biblical precedent, with language that he has used. And that's why I say keep on reading your Bible, even if you, quote, don't get anything out of it at this time. Because in the end, God uses that familiarity with his word to lead you and to nudge you, and suddenly things open up. Let's say you love somebody, but you can't speak their language well. Well, because you love them, you just want to keep on listening to them, thinking, yeah, yeah, I love this person, I just love hearing you talk, and bits and pieces here and there I pick up. For the rest of it, I don't, well, maybe one day I will, and then it'll all fall into place. And that's how it should be between us and God, not saying, oh, I don't understand that. Ah, yeah, forget his word. I didn't understand that bit. Ah, forget that. That's a terrible attitude. I mean, do you love God? To say that? Well, I assume not. Uh, because if you say, ah, oh, yeah, well, I, I, I can't understand what that girl's saying, blah, blah, well, yeah, I'm not going to bother talking to her. Well, okay. There's, there's no love there, is there? Peter says, if it is you, then bid me come unto you. He knew surely that the, the great characteristic of the Lord Jesus was that he is demanding. He really is demanding. Now, also, uh, I meant to mention that the Lord made as if he was going to walk past them. And then they cried out the more. It's rather like when he's on the way to Emmaus. He makes as if he's going to go further. And they say, oh, no, no, please don't go further. Please stay with us. Or when he says to sick people, say, a blind man, 
what would you like me to do for you? Well, I guess isn't it obvious? Oh, I want you. I want my sight back. I, I want to be able to see. Okay. Why? Well, it's because he has a way of leading people into situations whereby we cry out to him in desperation. And this, I think, explains what could be called the harder side of God, the harder side of Jesus. Whereby people say, well, why is he like that? Why is he so kind of tough? Well, it's not that he's tough. He does this out of love. He wants to bring people to him. So then, there's Peter with his one leg, as it were, in the boat, and the other leg hanging over the side of the boat. He's being led right out of his comfort zone. And, of course, fear not. And it's fear, is it not, that holds us back all the time. Fear of, of leaving that bunch of, you know, disciples who didn't have much faith, leaving the sides of the boat, which were not safe anyway, and just walking and doing as Jesus did. It's fear, really, that holds us back all the way. And this continual message of Jesus, fear not, fear not. You know, so many times he says this to people. Uh, so many times the Bible says this. Hundreds of times. Fear not. Uh, it's fear which really holds us all back. It's why there's so little true artistry. It's why there's so little true initiative. So few genuinely new ideas in this world, because people are fearful all the time. And this whole message that fear is now taken away, that this is a, a huge, a, a, a huge teaching. But of course, when he saw the wind boisterous, and as the point has been made, that means that he looked at something that was being blown by the wind, so he took his eyes off the focus upon Jesus, and then he was afraid. He disobeyed that command, be not afraid. Now, I have mentioned that I think that this condemnation experience that they, they went through on the lake was really, uh, let's say, a punishment, but it was a discipline because of turning away the crowds. And later on, he makes the same mistake, uh, and he, uh, he turns away the little ones. And Jesus says in Matthew 18, verse 6, that if you cause one of these little ones to stumble by not letting them come to me, you will be drowned in the midst of the sea. And it's the very same word, drowned, that is translated here, sink, that he began to sink in the midst of the sea. And when Jesus said, if you offend a little one, it's better that that you drowned in the midst of the sea. Well, which sea? Well, he was talking there by the, the Sea of Galilee. So, Peter still didn't quite get it, did he? That by turning away a little one, that's why he was sinking. And that's why yeah, this teaching is repeated in, in, in chapter 18, because he still doesn't get it. But in the end he does, because he shouts out, Lord, save me. And... This is exactly the, the, the phrase that he uses in Acts 2, verse 40, where he appeals to the crowd to save themselves and to call upon themselves the name of the Lord. And just as Jesus stretched out his hand, 
in verse 31. So you read in, in Acts 4 and 5 of Peter stretching out his hand to heal and saying that the Lord, the Lord Jesus, had stretched out his hand. In other words, all these experience of, experiences that he went through, he later used as the basis for his appeal to men and women to be saved. And this is what gives, I think, uh, power to our witness, that it is all on the basis of, it is all on the basis of our experience uh, of, of desperation, of the Lord's salvation of us. And that is what makes our witness credible. They that were in the ship, verse 33, come to him. Why are they called the disciples? I, I think it's because they were not then disciples. They, the, the record reflects their own sense of, unworship, of unworthiness. They came to him and worshipped him. Well, that, that's exactly the same word that's been used of Peter coming to the Lord, of the crowd coming to Jesus, um, and of Jesus throughout John 6, the parallel chapter, uh, talking about the need to come to him. So it's as if they're saying, we came to him for the first time after that. Now, who wrote the Gospels? Well, it was the disciples. And I think that they keep on emphasizing their own weakness. They're emphasizing all the way through here how they and their great leader, Peter, had failed. And it was in that account of their own failure that these Gospel records have credibility and have appeal. And they come to him and say, truly, you are the Son of God. Now, I would suggest that you are the Son of God in truth. It is or was the, uh, the confession that was made before baptism in the first century. And the whole intention of these gospel records and the citing of these gospels was to lead men and women to say that. Truly, you are the Son of God. And I think they're saying, look, we had to come to that conversion and we wish to share our own weakness and our own path to that belief that he is the son of God with you and we wish that you also would come through all the you know two steps back and three forward that we went through that you might come to the same faith and belief